I'm really grateful to the King's Fund for inviting me to come and talk about one element of patient power. I do dream of the day when the session on patient power is at the beginning of the day rather than at the end of the day. So, removing barriers to making informed choices, and this is a talk in two, in two halves, very brief halves, you'll be glad to know. Firstly, removing barriers to making informed choices, and we've heard a lot about the following three points already today, so I'm not going to label them. Firstly, it's about providing high-quality information tailored to patient needs, so that patients get what they want, where they want it, and how they want it. Secondly, it's about um, tackling equality and diversity issues. So, you know, one of the most obvious examples of that is making sure people get it in a language that they can understand. And we tailor the media by which it's communicated to suit our audience. And for instance, um, uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, percentage of um, NHS users without access to the internet is significantly higher than in the general population because of the you know the type of people that use the NHS less of them have access to the internet than the rest of the population so obviously we've got to address that when we're communicating information to them so that they can make an informed choice and thirdly and finally in this section uh, I think it's important that we provide people not just with information but we provide support to them to make an informed choice and I could say um, more, but I won't, about the uh, uh, new role for Health Watch as we're moving from local involvement networks to Health Watch. Local Health Watch has an additional role to that of links in providing information and support to people uh, around choice. There's also good work being done by librarians. There's a training package which NHS Choices piloted for training um, high street librarians to provide people with um, access to information and support about making choices in the NHS. And most importantly, as we've heard um, excellently from, from Angela, involving frontline clinicians in sharing information with patients and the whole process of shared decision making. And Elsa talked this morning about how information can guide decision making. So you're not just giving people loads of information, but that in going through the information, that guides them through the decision-making process and, and decision aids, as we've heard. So I could say more about all of those points, but instead, uh, in the second part, I'm going to look at, um, look at this issue through a slightly different lens, which is the lens of behavioural economics. Now, I'm not a behavioural economist, so I don't know a huge amount about it. Probably like you, I've read... Um, Thaler and Sunstein's nudge, which sort of, sort of comes in and out of fashion, depending on which politicians we have at the, have at the front line. And an, an earlier book, which um, Thaler and Sunstein referenced, which is The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, by uh, Barry Schwartz, which is an excellent book and illustrated with um, some great cartoons um, from The New Yorker. For instance, two chickens in the Arctic, saying one saying to the other, they really shouldn't have made us free range. And although it's a bit old now, we've had a vision of the future. I'm starting, I think, where we are today, and I think you know, the insights from, from both these books and others of their ilk are, are useful. So... From the view of popular behavioural economics, uh, what are some of the barriers uh, to choice? 
the first one is if you offer too many choices to people, they won't choose at all. They're paralysed by having too many choices. There's an example in the Swartz book about when choice is the motivating cause. So it talks about a research exercise. When researchers set up a display featuring a line of exotic high-quality jams, customers who came by could taste samples and were given a coupon for a dollar off if they bought a jar. In one condition of the study, six varieties of the jam were available for testing. In another, 24 varieties were available. In either case, the entire set of 24 varieties was available for purchase. The large array of jams attracted more people to the table than the small array, though in both cases people tasted about the same number of jams on average. When it came to buying, however, a huge difference became evident. 30% of the people exposed to the small array of jams actually bought a jar. Only 3% of those exposed to the large array of jams did so. So a small amount of choice, more people took the offer up of buying a jar. Large variety, less people did. Now, jam is one thing, and you know, a decision about healthcare is slightly more important, or very much more important if it's a question of life and death. But they found that this was the case, even if it wasn't about jams, and it was something about something more important, for instance, about your pension plan. And Thaler and Sunstein talk about the instance of pension picking your, your retirement plan in the United in the United States, and the results were, were somewhat similar. The first step in participating in a defined contribution plan is to enrol. Most workers should find joining the plan very attractive. Contributions are tax deductible, accumulations are tax deferred, in some cases tax free, and in many plans the employer matches at least part of the contributions of the employee. For example, a common plan feature is that the employer will match 50% of the employee's contribution up to some threshold, such as 6% of salary. This match is virtually free money. Taking full advantage of the match should be a no-brainer for all but the most impatient or cash-strapped households. Nevertheless, enrolment rates in such plans are far from 100%. In the United States, roughly 30% of employees eligible to join a pension plan fail to enrol. About 30% fail to enrol. Typically, younger, less educated and lower income employees are less likely to join, but even high-paid workers sometimes fail to sign up. So not everybody takes up the offer. So third, how many people here today, here at the moment are sitting in the same seats as they sat in when they came in this morning? Which brings me to the first one, which is called the status quo bias. Most people, unless there's a good reason to do so, tend to stick to the status quo. And this applies across a range of situations and Here's um, Schwartz, and see if this rings any bells with you. Right, it turns out that many people, although happy about the availability of telephone choices or electric choices, don't really make them. They stick with what they already have, even without investigating alternatives. Almost 20 years after phone deregulation, AT&T still has 60% of the market and half of its customers pay the basic rates. 
Most folks don't even shop around for calling plans within the company, and in Philadelphia, with the recent arrival of electricity competition, only an estimated 15% of customers shopped for best, better deals. He then goes on to say, which is a slightly different point, but I think it's quite interesting in relation to the NHS, you might think there's no harm in this, that customers are just making a sensible choice not to worry, but the problem is that state regulators aren't there anymore to make sure consumers don't get ripped off. In an era of deregulation, even if you keep what you've always had, you may end up paying substantially more for the same service. So it's an issue about, you know, if we're talking about deregulation and not having regulators where, you know, choice becomes the only mechanism, there are even greater um, problems. So fourthly, very briefly, loss aversion was the fourth point. People hate losing, losing things, and they hate losing things more than they like gaining things. And in fact, you can quantify that, and Thaler and Sunstein say people hate losses, Roughly speaking, losing something makes you twice as miserable as gaining the same thing makes you happy. In more technical language, people are loss-averse. So people really hate it if they feel they've missed out on something or they've suffered or lost something as a result of making a choice, making the wrong choice. You know, and there may be elements of you know, feeling responsible, and if you think it was you were making a choice for your child rather than just for yourself, you know, there are elements potentially of guilt there as well. So if we want to enable and encourage as many people as possible to make informed choices, what are the implications of those um, four things I've just read out to you? Firstly, and I'm, you know, this is all open to debate. I mean, you can question the evidence and you can question my, con my conclusions by all means, but it would seem to me to come to lead from, from, from those points to suggest that to encourage people to make informed choices, we should restrict the number of options that we make available to them. And also, possibly, the amount of information they need to look at in order to make the choice. Secondly, don't make the choice process too complicated and potentially, as we've said, use the information to guide people through the decision-making process so you make it as easy and straightforward as possible. Thirdly, don't make choice an issue of life and death. And, with, and I realise that potentially, and you know, the examples we've had here, that is exactly what we're talking about. We are saying, you know, it's up to you to choose to go to the hospital who have better survival rates or to go somewhere that's nearer or, you know, to make, to make your mind up. But it would, the evidence would seem to suggest that people are more willing to make a choice if they feel that it's not about life and death. And then fourthly, a point I haven't raised but, raised, but you'll be familiar with it from the, you know, the ideas of nudge, is about default settings and about setting a high-quality default option so that when people don't choose, we can be confident and they can be confident that they're getting a high-quality service and they're not just getting the rubbish that nobody else has chosen. And very briefly, I think what I'd like to conclude from that is we're almost got and I may I'm, uh, I'm presenting the extremes and we're probably not at the extremes but just to, to contrast them there is a picture of the NHS where it's about cutthroat competition and where the consumer is king and it's up to the consumer to drive up the quality by making a choice 
What I'm suggesting is that the evidence from the behavioural economics that I've quoted suggests rather a different picture of the NHS, which I would suggest is more like the NHS with which we're familiar and which we would aspire to, where it's a value-based NHS, where the values enshrined in the NHS, NHS constitution is what we're signed up to, where we all have a place in driving up quality, where we work together to drive up quality, uh, and the patient making a choice is a value-based Thing where we think it's right that the patient should have a choice of provider and they should have a cho and they should have a choice of treatment and we will do everything possible to support that but also that's only part of the quality improvement agenda and as it says in the NHS constitution among other things we will leave no one behind we will take everybody with us and equity is important uh, an important value that you know patients and the public you know hold dear uh, and which we want to meet thank you